Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this week's sponsor before our incredible conversation with Andrew Polstra from Blockstream. We talked about really cool stuff. A lot of it went over my head because I'm an idiot, but I think you guys are going to enjoy it. This week's episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know about it, but we also got some goddamn good news this week. Uh, it looks like they're finally rolling out deposits on the app. So if you have Bitcoin and you want to deposit on the Cash App, it looks like they're rolling out that functionality. I currently ha- have the ability to do that. You got to go through a little, um, you got to share a little bit of information with them, and then they enable deposits. So it looks like they're they're about to close the loop on the Cash App. And you guys know the Cash App's been the number one finance app in the app stores for the last two years with 15 million plus users. Uh, they've also got the Boost program, uh, which allows you to go to merchants and save and get uh, get money back. You get a boost card. You get to personalize it with your signature, uh, with a, with a Bitcoin symbol, with a lightning bolt, whatever you whatever floats your fancy, whatever tickles your fancy. That's the correct term there. Um, so yeah, go to your local app store today. Download the Cash App. Again, they're enabling uh, Bitcoin deposits on the app. They're rolling that out right now as we speak. Um, as uh, it seems that uh, things are things are, again. They're closing the loop on the Cash App. I hope you freaks. Enjoy this episode with Andrew Polstra. I know I did. I learned a lot about cryptography, taproot, uh, Bitcoin development, uh, culture, and other things. Enjoy. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt here in the Blockstream suite for interview two of the day with the head of research from Blockstream, Andrew Polstra. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I was uh, listening to your most recent episode, uh, podcast appearance, excuse me, on Noted with uh, Pierre and Michael, two stand-up gentlemen in the Bitcoin world. Uh, learned a lot about Miniscript. We're going to jump more into that in a little bit. But first, uh, as is par for the course here, Tales from the Crypt, what were you doing before you found Bitcoin? How did you find Bitcoin and why are you working on it now? So I first found Bitcoin in 2011. And at the time, I was about halfway through my mathematics degree at Simon Fraser University um, in Burnaby, uh, Canada. And I first heard, this is kind of funny, you just interviewed uh, Lawrence and he talked about finding Bitcoin on Slashdot and it seemed like way too good to be true. And So I also heard of Bitcoin on Slashdot, but unlike Lawrence, I did not have such a positive impression of it. Back in <laughs> back in 2011, there was this meme going around on Reddit and on Slashdot and other uh, uninformed places that the way that Bitcoin worked is that you had these people grinding through all of these hashes until they found like a very low hash. And that part is true. But then the story was that like, Bitcoin, the, the hashes were the Bitcoin. Somehow you were like selling these hashes. And I thought that's, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, um, sounds a bit stupid. Yeah. Like, I'm like, you know, I should go to this Bitcoin website and just copy all their hashes because <laughs> <laughs> so, this sounds ridiculous, but okay. If they'll pay me for these hashes, I'll find a list of hashes. And um, so I went, uh, I wound up on, I guess, bitcointalk.org and on IRC, I forget the exact sequence of steps that led me there, and I wound up hanging out with um, with a lot of people who we now know as like giants in the Bitcoin community. At the time in 2011, they were just you know normal people, enthusiasts. Like, yeah, just enthusiasts. 
Um, and I would go on IRC and I'd say dumb things and Greg Maxwell was there and he'd, he was always on IRC in those days, like very, very patiently answering questions for new people and getting people up to speed. Um, and I had shown up like many people in the era and many people still like trying to prove that this whole thing was ridiculous and it was never going to work. But the more that I looked into it, the more interesting it became. Um, and funnily, the more time I spent in the Bitcoin community, it was so welcoming and uh, it was such a friendly place at the time before any of the controversies that we've since lived through that I just stopped going to Slashdot. So Slashdot basically killed itself with this anti-Bitcoin <laughs> rhetoric, as as have so many giants. <laughs> uh, so it seems like you stumbled into Bitcoin like an opportune time towards the end of your, your studies and you su- it seems like this is your career now. And how, how does that feel to, to come straight from college into, into this world? Yeah, I was extremely fortunate. Um, as I was finishing my, gr- my degree, I had a year, almost two years, uh, to sort of bum around in the Bitcoin community, try to compile Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin Core at the time was just called Bitcoin. It didn't have the, the GUI that we have today. It was using a toolkit called WX Widgets which is not important what that is, except that it didn't compile for me. I spent two years trying to compile the software and I couldn't do it. And then eventually I think Corey or Vlad or somebody added an option to disable the GUI and also replaced it with more modern toolkits that actually work. Um, But by that time I I had gotten into the habit of just compiling without the GUI and I've never used the Bitcoin Core GUI, even though I use the command line since then. Um, But when I finished my degree, I went straight from SFU to the University of Texas at Austin, where I was starting a PhD in mathematics. And around that time, I discovered the IRC channel Bitcoin Wizards, where all of these people were doing amateur cryptography, like reading papers off the ePrint archive, um, studying all these, these cool ideas that it hadn't occurred to me I would have access to without doing a degree in cryptography. So this had been something I'd wanted to do for quite a while, but I couldn't because I couldn't find anyone to supervise me doing a crypto degree. I was having trouble directing my studies toward cryptography. So I had been doing mathematical physics. Is, is, is cryptography sort of a very, very niche area of mathematics that very few people are in? or It's not very, very niche, um, but it is a fairly... It is a fairly small community, um, people who do academic cryptography, um, at least in the very applied uh, window of academic cryptography that Bitcoin people are involved in. So when I go to academic crypto conferences, uh, there are conferences like Real World Crypto or Financial Crypto or things like this that are not so much general cryptography. It's not discussing applications of encryption. It's not discussing a lot of what people use cryptography for in the outside world. It's very much focused on signatures and zero-knowledge proofs and the kind of things that apply to Bitcoin and financial technology. And I always see like the same hundred people at all of these conferences. Like It's really kind of a narrow community. Um, having said that, it's not so niche that it would have been difficult to find somewhere where I could study cryptography, but I would have had to look. And at the time that I started my degree, I wasn't really looking, so I just sort of found myself unable to do it. And when I started my degree, I wasn't so into cryptography that I was going to do anything to do it, right? I also wanted to study mathematics. I also wanted to study physics, and that's what I wound up doing. Is it scary at all that uh, there's, uh, you see the hundred same people at these conferences about a technology that is very imperative to to the future of humans, I would argue? (laughs) So sometimes, yes. So this is getting 
better as more people come into the Bitcoin community and as information spreads out more widely. But it certainly has been true in the past, and it is still true now to some extent, that there's a fairly small community of people who really understand this technology quite deeply. And every so often, an enormous proportion of those people wind up in the same room or um, on the same plane or something like that. And in the early days, this would seem to happen quite a bit. And we kind of, we both wisened up and stopped riding the same planes all the time. And also, it's a much more open, it's a much wider community. It's much easier to get into this stuff. So it would be less of a, I mean, it wouldn't kill Bitcoin if, like, if something were to go wrong with one of these rooms full of a small set of people. No, it is. Uh, <laughs> 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 it does. Like conferences, like that, even not, not even cryptography specific, Bitcoin specific freaks me out yeah. when when Bitcoiners aggregate uh, or congregate, excuse me, in a very very centralized location. But uh, it is something I, I had actually had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. Like uh, like you see this in uh, in countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe that have gone through hyperinflation and kicked out the smart people like how how quickly their infrastructure goes to shit so thinking like yep we need we need to uh to groom more cryptographers it seems to 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 limit that risk i mean it seems that way um like i agree with you in principle um but it seems like there are a lot of things in the world that works this way Mm -hmm. it's very interesting and like historically this has gone wrong before um, for example, um, all of the people involved in the Apollo programs for NASA in the 60s and 70s retired since then in the 50 years since uh, NASA has sent anybody to the moon. And the current, like all of, there's a lot of specialized engineering knowledge related to how to do that, which is effectively lost and is more or less being rediscovered right now. Um, because there was a small community of people who knew what they were doing and had all of this um, kind of tribal knowledge. And that went away. It wasn't passed on. It stopped being used. It went away. Um, the maybe happier example would be um, all of the people qualified to do um, nuclear physics in Germany in the 1940s were all uh, either sent out of the country or captured in some way. Um, and it became a very hostile place for intellectuals and academics. And um, as a result, Germany faced a tremendous brain drain. And despite fears during the war, Germany was actually never anywhere near having a nuclear weapon because of exactly this kind of effect. Yeah, they were all in the Manhattan Project at that point. Yeah, there were a lot of them came over to the Manhattan Project. Um, so, so while it would be nice to have more cryptographers and to not have such a situation, ultimately there are very many different fields that require this level of specialized knowledge and only so many people in the world. And people tend to specialize and congregate. And like if we had 100 times as many cryptographers, maybe we'd be taking away people who know a whole lot about nuclear physics or about train switching or about uh, space programs or about any of the other things that require really detailed, specialized knowledge. And it also may be that this is kind of a natural consequence of human communities not... uh, communicating information so well once they get past a few hundred people. Like, it could be that, that when you have a larger community, you don't get that intense density of focused knowledge. It's not socially scalable? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just may be, and I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing, I'm just saying, like, it may be that it's very difficult to mm-hmm. scale a community in that way, and that may be the reason why we see so many historical examples of exactly this happening. Yeah. 
what uh what are the personality types of the people in this cryptography community so they vary or is there a very common theme among among uh your fellow cryptographers i feel like there are some common themes um there's kind of so this is interesting. So, ac- so cryptography as a field has quite a bit of variance, but the people who I'm willing to hang around with, there's much less variance. Um, so for example, there are uh, a wide subset of cryptographers who are doing cryptography for military applications, and they have all these DOD grants, and they're off at you know, government agencies doing secret things they're not allowed to talk about. And there are other subsets of the cryptographic community who are like very um, like militant pacifist or however i mean maybe you know what i mean by that mm-hmm. and um and they would never work for the government and they would never accept these grants or anything um and then there are people and this is more of the bitcoin kind of people people who would call themselves cypherpunks who are the ones trying to use cryptography to disrupt existing power structures and these people tend to have very strongly held opinions uh, they tend to be very anti-patent. They tend to be very um, anti-centralization, anti-surveillance, um, anti-censorship. Um, and they have this, a, a lot of the work that they do, they do in order to affect change against those things that they don't like. Um, and so Bitcoin... Bitcoin kind of came out of this community. Like this, the, the term cypherpunk was, I don't think it was coined by Tim May, but Tim May in 1995 wrote the cypherpunk manifesto. And this was a manifesto of a small community of cryptographers, both professional and uh, amateur cryptographers, who had a small internet community, mostly focused around mailing lists and Usenet and stuff. And they would look at things like... Um, like say the clipper chip was something proposed by the Clinton administration. <laughs> to, uh, right. They wanted to put a, a chip in your computer to track everything. Right? Yeah. Or in, in your TV to make sure you weren't <sighs> watching bad content or so that you could ensure that your children weren't watching bad content where was, I believe the, the justification that was given to the public. And this eventually fell on its face, perhaps because of efforts by cypherpunks uh, taking political and, and other action, um, or it may have just been technically infeasible. Um, one strange thing that causes things like this to work out better than you might expect, given human nature and given the incentive of that play, is that, I guess related to the situation we talked about, where there's very small groups of people who understand this stuff, often when those small groups of people have some sort of ideological bent and refuse to help with things, if you're a poorer nation state just trying to watch all of your people you may have a difficult time finding anybody who's willing to help you anybody who's competent who's willing to help you do that and uh and even if you can find competent people the people who want to undermine you are more competent and mm-hmm. you wind up on the losing side of an arms race so you, are you uh under the belief that the most competent people are are fighting the good fight um that would be a very optimistic thing for me to believe mm-hmm. um but yes, yeah, I, I'm willing to say that it would. That would seem to be the case based on my experience in the Bitcoin community. Um, but having said that, I live in kind of a bubble in the Bitcoin world, right? I mean, that we as all I do, s- yeah. right? As I said, like there are wide swaths of cryptographers who are doing all sorts of military applications, and to be honest, I don't have a good idea of what they do. 
I don't like talking to them. I don't really care about their research. I don't know what they're doing. They could be miles ahead of me. And probably I wouldn't find out about that. Mm -hmm. So while I do believe that the most confident people are fighting the good fight, I really don't have the evidence. Can't say with certainty. Yeah. yeah. So within Bitcoin in particular, who are top tier cryptographers outside of yourself? Oh my goodness. Um, there are not too many to list, but there are too many for me to list them all without forgetting people. Um, but the people who I work with closely, say, are Peter Willa, of course, and Gregory Maxwell, and Jonas Nick, and Tim Roofing, and um, there's a guy, Yannick Sarin, um, who helped us with Musig. He wrote the security proof for Musig. Uh, he's... Um, works for Inria in France. No, that's not correct. I forget. Um, some agency like Inria. Um, oh, there are many people I should be naming, um, but I'm blanking here. But th those are the people who come to mind mm -hmm. at the top of my head. And how, like, Larry and I were talking about peer programming and stuff like that before. How are you guys bouncing ideas off each other, stress testing, and, and are you doing the... Because I know Greg Maxwell came out a couple months ago and said he, he's only uh, interacting in private with people instead of in public more. Um, so sidebarring ideas and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So in the early days of Bitcoin Wizards, um, when the Bitcoin community and the Bitcoin research community was much smaller, um, because there's like there's a whole group of cryptographers, who I, like other groups of cryptographers who also do Bitcoin stuff that I didn't just list. Um, there are folks at NYU, there are folks at Stanford, there are folks, uh, there are some people at Cornell, I guess. Um, there are a bunch of research groups around the world who I interact with sometimes. I meet them at conferences, but I don't do too much. I don't really collaborate that with them. We don't exchange ideas too much. Um, there are people at Purdue as well, Pedro Marino Sanchez. Um, and so when the Bitcoin community was much smaller, we would talk a lot on IRC and we would just private message each other or not even private message. We would just talk on the Bitcoin Withers channel. And that was an effective way of communicating when there were only a couple dozen people and there were only two or three who were talking at the same time. And as things have grown and as um, a lot of what we do has become politicized, it becomes difficult to have conversations in public uh, or as publicly as we did before. Um, there's just a lot more friction. And so we find that the conversations that we're having in public are often things where we have to consciously decide to have those conversations in public because we feel like they need to have public input and oversight and stuff. And this typically happens after we've already hashed out a lot of our internal disagreements. So the way that a lot of things happen in private or, or in practice is there are some semi-private, low-volume IRC channels uh, that I'm not going to name, but like you can find if you type slash list and look at all 18,000 free note channels, they'll be in there somewhere. <laughs> um, there are some small uh, offsuit channels of Bitcoin wizards where people discuss some specific topics, um, such as mini script or sorry mini sketch, which is a set reconciliation protocol that was developed by Greg Maxwell and Peter Willa and Gleb Namunko. Namunko. Um, among uh, a couple of, but it's mostly those three, and they have a channel where they talk about things. And there's one where there's a whole bunch of discussion leading up to the Taproot bit proposal. Um, there were sort of five or six of us that were iterating on that. And then, in addition to that, some conversations happen in like private communication and emails and in IRC messages and stuff. 
And then a fair bit happens face-to-face. We try to meet people at conferences. We try to meet each other. Um, if we're just in the same city, usually we'll call each other. Um, and so actually one, one cool example of this actually is, is Taproot, Taproot itself. Mm-hmm. The original idea for Taproot was developed by Greg Maxwell and Peter Woola and myself. And we were at a diner in California in like, you know, within a hundred miles of the San Francisco Bay, I'll say. And, <laughs> and we were just getting <laughs> breakfast and, and talking and, and uh, shooting the shit as we do. And Taproot showed up kind of serendipitously. What had happened was somebody had messaged Greg privately asking about a, some more efficient script construction they had for somehow hiding a time-locked emergency um, clause for their spending policy. And I had also had basically the same problem. It may have been with Larry uh, working on Blockstream Green, actually. And Greg and I were talking about this, thinking like, if we had, if we made a future version of Bitcoin script, how could we hide these time locks? Is there any way we can make the time locks take like zero space? And we got it down to 32 bytes. And then we were spitballing about this construction we knew about that would let you hide stuff inside of an elliptic curve public key with zero additional space. And... I thought, hey, what if we took the public keys that we go through CheckSig and we had like an alternate CheckSig operator that would like expand the public key and pull out this hidden data and then you could spin that script and stuff. And Greg said, screw CheckSig. What if that was the output, right? Like what if we just put the public key in the output and then by default you signed it? And that was, that was where Taproot came from. It was just like a very quick exchange of ideas. And this works... So it, it was not only because we had a, a small set of people who all knew each other very well and, and we, we tend not to miscommunicate and we can talk very quickly, but also because we were all in person, we were able to communicate very quickly and there's a lot of like facial and You can read inflection and stuff yeah, like that. Exactly. That's um, why I do these interviews in person. Yeah, yeah. And it's just much easier to develop, at least to come up with ideas like that, at least the seeds of ideas. And there is quite a bit of discussion that happens that way and i think all of us try to find our way to certain conferences uh throughout the year where we know that there will be other people in the bitcoin crypto community are these uh bilderberg backdoor uh meetings to to bastardize bitcoin and and backdoor the the protocol so these are all very open conferences (laughs) these are scaling bitcoin there's a, a conference called sbc the stanford blockchain conference that i believe is free um mm-hmm. there's the real world crypto conference that was a hundred dollars one year and they sold out in five minutes and now it might be 250 or something um so these are these are accessible conferences that if you're interested in meeting people and you're interested in getting into the space you can certainly show up and, and listen to talks and ask questions and meet people and get a get quite a bit of knowledge that way and i uh what was I going to say? I had I had a follow up to that comment that I've now lost. I think the oh. comment was going to be, "Yeah, we're definitely not sponsored by Bilderberg." Or uh, no, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I uh, I swear on. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. I get a uh, I get a kick out of those conspiracy theories. Yeah, no, I do as well. I think they're a lot of fun, and I try I try to poke them when I can. But. Uh, you guys do a good job of uh, sat- uh, 
satirically making fun of them in videos. I like the lizard, the lizard, uh, the lizard uh, masks that you guys have. Yeah, yeah, those are a lot of fun. We've got hats now that say "Blockstream Spy," and we get people to wear those <laughs> around town. Actually, my favorite parody video that you guys made was the uh, the time stamping video on April Fools, uh, sort of visualizing why it's stupid to to blockchain your supply chain. Yep. Oh, I, yeah, I remember that. That was fun. That was fun. Um, so let's jump into like Taproot, uh, Bit, ta- excuse me, Bip, Taproot, Schnorr. We were discussing this between Larry, Larry's recording and this recording. Uh, I was sort of confused with Bip, Taproot, what's included, um, and sort of how all these things come together. So the way I understand it, Schnorr is sort of the prerequisite that makes a lot of these Taproot, uh, Graphroot stuff work. Is this a correct assumption? Yeah, that's that's a reasonable way to put it. So Schnorr is a crypto primitive called the digital signature. It's a replacement for ECDSA, which is also a digital signature. And Schnorr signatures are basically the simplest possible digital signature. They're like the most obvious. If you're going to come up with a digital signature, you would come up with this. Um, they're incredibly obvious. They're They're derivative of a bunch of other work that have been done. Unfortunately, the U.S. Patent Office disagreed with the fact that it's obvious and derivative. So they granted Schnorr a patent that lasted from 1990 until 2008, which is why Bitcoin uses ECDSA today. So what we're doing is we're going back to the signatures that we should have been using um, that have a very simple algebraic structure. And as a consequence of that simple algebraic structure, they're very extensible. There are a lot of things that we can do with Schnorr signatures. But... Ultimately, Schnorr itself is just a drop-in replacement for ECDSA. Mm-hmm. It's kind of not very interesting by itself. But what we can get... So I guess let me list the things in the Taproot and TapScript proposals that we are able to efficiently do or, or do at all because we have Schnorr signatures as a primitive rather than being stuck using ECDSA. Um, so Taproot itself, as I mentioned, is this construction where you hide a script inside of a public key and the idea here is that since most coins are spent by somebody just creating a single signature we should privilege that mode of spending so your coins like you and i have have bitcoin wallets our coins have public keys associated to them right now those public keys are encoded on the bitcoin blockchain in the form of a script a script that says here's a public key give me a signature that validates with these public keys. Here we just make that implicit. We just put the public key there, no script, no anything. And only if there is something other than a signature you need to satisfy the the conditions of spending these coins, do you need to reveal your script in Taproot. And you reveal your script, anybody can verify that the script was actually committed inside of the public key. But if you don't reveal it, nobody can tell what the script was or even that it was there. And this would this is cool by itself, but if that were the whole story, it probably would not get a lot of traction. People would be very suspicious of it. They say, "Well, maybe right now people are using single keys for all their bitcoins, but they could they shouldn't because that's fragile and um, it increases the risk of lossy keys or key corruption or whatever." Like the many things it increases the risk of. Mm-hmm. So one thing that Schnorr signatures get us, which makes this interesting again, is that with Schnorr you can very efficiently create multi-signatures and threshold signatures that are that are themselves just Schnorr signatures. So you can think of this as making a multi-signature, or you can think of this as jointly producing a single signature. 
So the idea here is that something like Blockstream Green, where we have a two of three multi-signature, or a two of three threshold signature, um, if we had Schnorr signatures, rather than doing that the way we do today, where you have two signatures and you just put two signatures onto the blockchain, you, the user of the green wallet and um, Blockstream, would jointly produce a single signature that hits the blockchain. And because it's one signature, you can spend it using Taproot without revealing any scripts. So now we've extended the, uh, the things you can do with just a signature from somebody sending their own coins to any kind of multi-signature or threshold signature or more complicated policy related to signatures. And this sort of lo this looks, uh, this is, when you're looking at it on the blockchain, you can't really tell the difference between anything and it sort of hides these functionalities in the script, correct? Or not in the script, in the, uh, in the signature. Yeah, exactly. So you get a tremendous privacy and fungibility boost mm -hmm. because there is no difference from a verifier's perspective um, between a normal like single signer signature and something more complicated that might have been created by Blockstream Green or by BitGo or by CASA or by Liquid or by any of these things that are using multi-signatures today. They would all look the same mm -hmm. and verify the same. And uh, that's a good segue into uh, Miniscript, something that you've been working on. So you're working on something. This would work without Taproot, Snore, and any of this, but it's something that would make uh, the scripts, the unique scripts that something like BitGo makes that you guys make for Liquid um, and other stuff sort of uh, uh, you're able to communicate across, correct? Yep, yep. So in the same vein, but in some sense completely different. Yes, very, is, yes. Um, the way that you today bitcoin script is actually very expressive this is for some reason not very widely known the ethereum people showed up took this word smart contract instead of memeing that smart contract meant something where you have this incredible key value store of key value stores that nobody can possibly verify and you make sure every all of your transactions are updating a tremendous amount of state and doing so in a way that their validity depends on what block they're in and what order they appear in so that every reorg is catastrophic but Bitcoin has <laughs> always supported a form of smart contracting that doesn't have any of those problems. And we just don't call it smart contracts because in some sense, it's kind of an obvious idea. Um, or, you know, actually, I have no idea why we don't call it smart contracts because in the early days, like back when folks like Nick Sabo were around in the Bitcoin community more actively and more visibly, we did use the term. And... Bitcoin script was designed for smart contracting purposes. But here's, here's what I think happened and, and why we don't think of Bitcoin as being a smart contracting platform and, uh, and how Miniscript intends to fix what I believe happened. So Bitcoin does interesting contracts, does things like multi-signatures and time locks and hash primages and lightning HTLCs and all of this crazy stuff using a special purpose language called Bitcoin script. And Bitcoin script was designed to be very easy to reason about. It doesn't have unbounded loops like Ethereum does. It doesn't have go-to, so you can jump around randomly in the script like Ethereum does. It has, um, and th those two things are huge by themselves, because if you don't have either of those, then in principle, given a Bitcoin script, somebody could look at it, they could determine what the largest like how big a transaction might be that spends coins controlled by that script they should be able to tell you how many signatures are needed all all these kind of things but in practice this is actually very difficult to do it's possible to do quite pathological things with bitcoin script meaning that general purpose analysis of scripts 
is basically impossible. Like to the extent that it's possible, it's useless because it will give you such general answers about what a script is and does that you don't really learn anything about it at all. And the reason for this is just that Bitcoin script has a whole pile of opcodes that do weird things. And we might talk later about the disabled opcodes. Believe it or not, none of the disabled opcodes are problematic here. It's the ones that are still there that do weird things. But um, but to because of this problem, people doing interesting things like Green or Liquid or Bitco who have scripts that do non-trivial things, the implementers of those systems are forced to write ad hoc code to produce these scripts, to assemble signatures that satisfy those scripts, to reason about the fee market in the presence of those scripts, trying to decide how large a transaction will be that spends them, to guarantee that the scripts do what their creators expect them to. Like BitGo acts as a countersigner, they want to make sure that coins can't move without their signature, or I guess some time lock I think they have to, um, in case they go down. Similar for Blockstream Green. Um, and the user should also be assured that the coins can't move without their, their uh, consent, right? That's the most important thing. And because Bitcoin script is so difficult to reason about, everybody has their own independent code bases doing all of these things. And there's a lot of human analysis and a lot of very specific scripts that are done because humans need to vet everything. Mm -hmm. And what Miniscript is, is it's a... One way to look at it is a subset of Bitcoin script where there is nothing confusing or difficult to analyze. And it supports signatures, it supports hash preimages, it supports time locks, it supports any combination you can think of those. So you can say like three of five signers or a time lock and then two of three or a longer time lock and a hash preimage has to be revealed and a sig like whatever you can think of in, co in combining these. So now I think it's coming together for me. So some of these like BitGo and Liquid may have different uh, parameters through which they, they come to these scripts and you're just allowing uh like putting them putting them all in one whatever mini script and letting them communicate across each other is um it's not quite that it's that they would have different mini scripts but they all would be mini scripts mm -hmm. so the distinction between script and mini script is that given a bitcoin script you can't really say anything about it without asking a human to look at it and reason about what it's supposed to do and then convince themselves like it actually does what it's supposed to do but if you have a mini script a mini script is a much more abstract thing. It's like a tree of different combinations of signature requirements and hash preimages and stuff. And so if you want to convince yourself that, say, you are a countersigner to every branch of a mini script, or at least every branch that doesn't have a time lock on it, that is very easy to do with mini script. You just go through every branch of the script and you check whether or not your key is on there. You say, like, either my key is there or the time lock. And maybe the time lock has to be a certain length. So you know people can't take your coins too quickly or something like that. Um, if you want to know what the time locks are, it's very easy. You just scan through the mini script looking for time locks. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to know, and here's where things get interesting. If you want to know how large a witness for a mini script might be, that's an easy question to answer. You can just go through this. We know the rules for encoding things on Bitcoin. Um, Miniscript supports complicated things. It supports if statements and branches and all sorts of stuff. Sometimes you have to add extra data beyond signatures. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have to push a zero to take one branch and a one to take the other or something like that. Um, because Miniscript is small and self-contained, we have libraries out there that know how to take a Miniscript and just tell you how much it will cost to satisfy. And it can tell you the maximum cost, the minimum cost, the average cost, and so on. It can tell you which public keys you need to give it signatures for. 
the library, I have a library written in Rust, which will request signatures on a list of public keys. And you give it uh, all the signatures that you have. And it will tell you whether the script can be satisfied with the signatures that you gave it. If you gave it enough, it will produce a satisfying witness. It will make the smallest satisfying witness. So if you have like, you need three or five signatures and you give it all five, it will choose the three smallest ones, for example. So it's almost like an efficiency alarm? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, it lets you do things more efficiently. Um, and actually, kind of amusingly, um, I'm aware of two examples of people who using Miniscript were able to find more efficient scripts than the ones they had come up with by hand. One of them was us with Liquid. We were actually able to save two bytes in our Liquid um, uh, spending policy using Miniscript versus the scheme that we'd come up with. The other is a company called Arwen in the uh, Boston area. Uh, this is Sharon Goldberg and Ethan Hellman and mm -hmm. a few folks like that. They're doing custody solutions. Correct? Yeah, they're, they're doing like a split custody crypto to crypto exchange mm -hmm. using sort of a custom Bitcoin smart contract that's similar to, an, uh, similar to a Lightning HDLC, but it's different in a way that lets them support uh, Bitcoin Cash, uh, which doesn't have SegWit and therefore doesn't is vulnerable to malleability attacks. Mm -hmm. So they've taken some, some measures to prevent that. And uh, using Miniscript, they were able to find a slightly more efficient script than the one that they had there. But then also, because Miniscript is so general, it lets you, like, when you're, when you're spending coins, you can choose, you can find maybe a more efficient way of spending coins than you otherwise would. Simply because you have the same, <coughs> you have a single library that everybody can use to answer the same questions. Because we, like, Arwen and Blockstream Green and Liquid and BitGo and Casa and everybody, we all care about the same questions about our scripts. Uh, we care about how large they are. They care about how much they cost to satisfy. We care about how do we satisfy them if we have the right signatures. How do we satisfy them if like, we have to use a time lock thing? As far as I'm aware, there's no tooling out there for using time lock emergency things. I think there is in the Lightning software, but nobody else has it. Like in Liquid today, if um, the network goes down and we need to use the emergency uh, alternate spending mechanism to recover coins, we're going to write software like when that day comes. It's fine. I mean, like Lawrence was saying, it's a weekend project. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but it's silly. It's silly that we have to do that, right? But with mm -hmm. Miniscript, Minis the Miniscript library can just do it for us. So we got for free that uh, that we no longer have that, that tool to write, which is great. Yeah, and this is, um, I was talking with Lawrence about AB Core decentralization being the ideal that we strive for. It's like stuff like this is helps us become more decentralized because it uh, sort of uh, tames the growth of the chain uh, state. Or not the chain state, the uh, the size of the chain, correct? So what mini so mini script actually is probably bad for the size of the chain yeah? state because it's going to let people do more interesting things. Okay. Um, although to the extent the mini script is bad in that direction, Taproot will then recompress things and things will be even smaller than they were. Um, but what mini script gets us is a much wider variety of possibilities for using Bitcoin and much more robust uses for Bitcoin. So. Let me give you an example that affects me personally and many people that I know personally and also many institutions that, I, that I'm aware of, which are I have uh, a non-zero number of Bitcoins that I hold personally. And those Bitcoins are stored on ordinary single signer SegWit addresses associated to a single public key, which is derived deterministically from some master seed, which is then split up and stored securely in some collection of locations or something. What I would like 
is that my coins would be stored on some sort of multi-sig, at least my long-term storage coins that I don't spend very often. Uh, I would like those to be stored on some sort of multi-signature, some redundant, like, two of three. Like, I can spend them if I go to my cold storage thing, or maybe if I'm willing to call my parents or my girlfriend or somebody to countersign, then we can move them. I would like there to be a lock-timed alternate spending path that would allow my coins to be recovered in the case that I lose my keys or I die or I disappear or something. And right now, because there's no tooling for doing this whatsoever, I don't do this. I have my coins on single key addresses. My parents have a letter explaining how to recover them. This letter involves them phoning multiple Bitcoin core developers at home and asking them for help mm -hmm. because I couldn't even give a reasonable workflow in this letter. And part of this is because I wrote my own wallet with insane <laughs> um, spending requirements. Um, but part of it is just that it's difficult to use Bitcoin. And I've wanted for a long time to write some tools that will let you recover my coins. That will let me do this and still be able to spend my coins and still be able to recover them and stuff. But the problem is this doesn't help with recovery because if I write a tool on my personal GitHub account, my parents don't know how to use that, right? Um, so I'm back to square one telling them, oh, call you know this Bitcoin core developer. He looked at my tool once and he'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> so with Miniscript, now I'll be able to do that because there will be just general Miniscript signing tools out there and I'll be able to give like a few simple... So will this be actions. something where like if you don't sign a message every N blocks release to this address or something like that? Yeah, it would be something like that. Yeah, and I'd set N to be like 6 or 12 months, I think. The most you can set in Bitcoin script is 12 months, mm -hmm. I believe. And I forget the exact reason. I think it's a maximum number of blocks. <laughs> so does it use Unix time to, to derive that, or is it going up block height and a perceived uh, guesstimated year length? This is embarrassing. For the, the one in <laughs> script, I don't know. So that there are two mechanisms for wi by which you can do lock times like this. Mm -hmm. um, one is to create a lock time transaction spending the coins normally. That is just has something called a lock time on it, meaning the transaction is invalid until some time is up. And for that one, if you give it a number um, less than some threshold, it's like 5 million or something like that, then it's interpreted as a block height. And if you give it a larger number, that's interpreted as a Unix timestamp. Okay. Um, and yeah, I wonder where the threshold is and if we're going to hit it soon. I should take a look at that. <laughs> um, but the other way is to directly support this in Bitcoin script using an opcode called check sequence verify, which is horribly named, but it means check the, the how old the coin is. Mm -hmm. And for that, I believe you can only set a lock, uh, number of blocks. And I further believe that there is a maximum number of blocks you're allowed to set this in the consensus rules. And it works out to roughly a year. So you cannot lock time things using this technique, which is a bit more robust than having a lock time transaction that you better not lose. Um, but it limits you to doing one year. Yeah. It's, um, so would you get like a, would you be able to set it up with like a watch only wallet app that says like 100 blocks before the time locks up? Like you should probably sign a message and then it will just add to, it'll just like push it more into the future. Is that how it works? Yes. Yeah. So here's, here's another benefit or, or another specific benefit of Miniscript that makes this kind of thing very easy. So we actually have something similar today in Liquid. Um, the way that the Liquid network works is that all the coins in the system are ultimately custodied by an 11 of 15 threshold signature of the, the quorum of participants in the system. And... There is, after 
a month, I believe. What is 20? No, two weeks. Two, 2016 blocks. Um, these coins then become available for spending by an emergency policy, which are some cold keys that are spread across the world. And the idea is that if the network crashes, if our HSMs all catch fire at once or something like that, then we'll be able to recover the coins in the system by some alternate human-mediated method. And today in... And so the liquid network, the functionaries who are supposed to control the coins, need to make sure that they move these coins every 2016 blocks. Otherwise, um, there will be an alternate spending path which should never be available while the network is alive. And the way that our existing code, the deployed code, does this is that it has a very specific template that the coins should be controlled by. Mm -hmm. It knows how to parse that template. It knows how to recognize functionary keys in that template. It knows where to look for a lock time. It pulls out a couple bytes that represent a time, parses those as an integer, um, and it says, okay, as long as it's not older than that number, then I need to move the coins. With Miniscript, this is much, much easier. Mm -hmm. You take the script, you run a function that looks like miniscript.parse this script, and now it's a Miniscript. So it used to... It, you're just representing uh, the script as a miniscript. And then you say miniscripts list all of the time locks that are available. And the first one will always be zero because, well, I guess if you had coins that you just couldn't move, then the first one would be, would be zero. It will give you a second number. And now our code that we haven't deployed yet checks, are there two numbers? The bigger one is the expiry. Okay. Like, that's how simple it is. <laughs> and this uh this is way more robust against changes in how we control uh the um, what the f spending policy looks like because they're no longer templating scripts and trying to parse and doing all this ugly stuff and it's way easier to read you look at our source code and you can just see what's going on so is miniscript like a wrapper for these scripts or so this is a cool thing so there are two ways to look at miniscript i i think of it as a alternate language to bitcoin script for describing spending policies for bitcoins but miniscript has an encoding that is in the form of Bitcoin script. Okay. So you can encode and decode Bitcoin script to Miniscript. And the encoded form, when run by the Bitcoin script interpreter, will have exactly the same semantics as the Miniscript as, as described. So you have some policy that's kind of human readable, right? It's like this key and this key or this key kind of thing. And the semantics of that are exactly what I described, right? That is what semantics means just like what, what it does, what the spending policy actually is. And when you encode this as Bitcoin script, it will look much more complicated. It's going to look something like push this public key, call a check sig operator, push the result to the alternate stack, push this pub key, call the, alt the check sig operator, pull the other result from the stack, run the Boolean and opcode, push the result. And, like, like, and the semantics of that are actually the same as, as just this key and this key. But you can see now that what I just said is very non-obvious, that those are, that those do the same thing. Seems right? arduous. Yeah. yeah, it's arduous. So with Miniscript, we have a set of predefined script templates or, or script fragments that, as far as we're aware, express all of the most efficient constructions for doing ands and ors and thresholds and stuff in Bitcoin script. And that we, Peter and I, and, and a few other people who have, have gotten excited and read through our code, have basically vetted that all of these fragments do exactly what we think in the ways that we think. And now that we've vetted those fragments that required a fair bit of human work, um, now we can just use miniscripts. And we can take a Bitcoin script that's already on the network and just decode it as a miniscript. And then we, do, we don't have to worry about the script semantics because now it's in a form that directly represents the semantics. And you don't have to ask permission for that at all. No. no. Um, and what's cool is this is so... 
this is like way like on the spectrum of things that are permissionless. Like this is this is to the moon. It's really cool. So right. first of all, it's uh, I mean it's permissionless in the Bitcoin sense of anybody can use it. Anybody can do what they want. Um, it doesn't require any consensus changes or consensus layer logic. Um, so anybody can use it with the existing Bitcoin system today. Um, and then because it is because it encodes to a subset of script, even if Peter and I go and change the language as we define it. I mean, anybody can run whatever code, but even if Peter and I like change the language a hundred times and we're like, oh, well, now what we call Miniscript is, is this thing. Chances are, if you're doing something that's not really contrived, our new version will still encode what you were doing and you just keep on parsing your script as Miniscript and, and don't worry about what changed at the edges. If we change to like allow SHA, like RipeMD instead of SHA, we might add that, for example. So it's backwards compatible as well. It, it's very backwards compatible. It's very robust to changes in the underlying script. And the reason for that is that we have to be able to encode the Bitcoin script and decode from Bitcoin script, and that doesn't change, mm-hmm. right? It's fascinating, man. How the hell did you get this smart? <laughs> <laughs> this is the question I have right now. This is Liz. like, it's blowing my mind. Like how? So, so there's there's a funny story about Miniscript. So all, all the intelligent stuff here is Peter Willa, to be clear. It's not me. All the efficient parsing and all that good stuff. Um, actually, it's funny. As we were designing it, sometimes Peter would put stuff in, and I wouldn't know how to parse it. And I'd say, I reject that change because I don't, underst- I don't know how to write the code for it. And so it, it's deliberately very simple to write a parser for it because I didn't want to understand how like LAR1 parsers and stuff worked. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, exactly. Um, and fortunately, we didn't have to sacrifice efficiency anywhere to get that. Like We were worried that we would, but it turned out everywhere where something was difficult, there was an equivalent construction that wasn't so difficult. Um, so the story behind how Miniscript started was Carl Dong, who is a Bitcoin developer who works at Chaincode right now. TFTC alum, too. He's been on this podcast. Oh, excellent. Talking um, about Geeks containers. Yeah. So Carl is uh, one of the maintainers of the Rust Bitcoin project. This is a library that does all sorts of Bitcoin transaction and block-related things um, in, uh, uh, for Bitcoin. And he wanted to add some support for multi-signatures. And... So he wrote some code and he wrote some unit tests. It was all like really solid stuff, but he had templated a specific kind of multi-signature. And I said, I don't want that in the library. This is a general library and we're not going to use your special purpose like multi-signature thing because that's like one specific thing you're doing is multi-signatures. Which, to be clear, I was being irrational here. I mean, multi-signatures are very general. But I was like, no, that's too specific. I was like, what if I want to do a multi-signature and a hash preimage or something? And Carl said, well, what, like, what the hell do you want me to do? I'm not going to write a general script analysis engine or something so that you don't have templates in your unit tests. And um, I said, well, okay, let me think about this. And so I happened to be in Mountain View near Blockstream's office at the time. So I was able to go locate Peter Woola. And I said, Peter, I need to define a subset of script that will contain everything that I care about but doesn't have, it's not just a fixed set of templates. And he said, oh, that's funny because we need to do the same thing in Bitcoin Core. And so we both independently uh, had the goal of creating such a thing. And so we got to work doing this. We took out two or three whiteboards in the Blockstream office in Mountain View. And we spent like 40 hours just like laboriously going through every possible Bitcoin script construction we could think of. And like counting opcodes and counting bytes and reasoning about how much it would cost to satisfy them. And in the end, what we came up with was Miniscript. And it was really um, a combination of a lot of hard work and grinding to get like the most efficient thing we could possibly do that we are a little bit obsessive of. 
and Peter knowing all sorts of computer science stuff about what could be efficiently satisfied and what could be efficiently reasoned about. And, uh, and like Peter was able to write a compiler from an abstract, like an even more um, human readable language in Miniscript to Miniscript where it would choose, it would choose the most optimal of all the different Miniscript constructions for something. Um, so optimizing the optimizer? Um, almost. Ba- almost, yeah. Um, so, well, the, the Miniscript optimizer, uh, what the Miniscript library that I wrote does, it optimizes spending coins, <laughs> but it doesn't find the smallest Miniscript for you. You still have to figure out, you've got a few different ways to do ors, you've got a few different ways to do ands, you've got to choose the right one for your use case that will be the smallest. And Peter wrote a compiler that would find the right one. You would just say, I want this key and this key or this key. And it would just grind through every possibility, basically, and do so in quite an efficient way. And then, actually, I wrote a compiler as well in Rust to compete with them. So he and I independently wrote compilers for the same language. And then because Peter had written a general tool for creating sentences in any language, he was able to produce the first, like, 10 million uh, miniscripts, just, like, programmatically generated them with a tool that he already had lying around that he was using for password generation or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so he generated 10 million miniscripts or, or 10 million of these abstract, what we call the policy language. And he and I both compiled all 10 million to miniscript and then compared every single one to check we got the same result. And they lined up. And they lined up. And that, that's how we did a lot of our software testing. Is that, a, is that enough of a, a sample, you think? Um, well, we didn't think so, no. So we, after doing the first 10 million, then we started generating random ones that were enormous that had like 100 bits of entropy and stuff. And we found when they got too complicated, our compilers wouldn't finish in a reasonable amount of time. They would take hours to run. Mm-hmm. But we did take a random sampling of quite very, like deliberately random and enormous policies and checked that they would still compile to something sane. Um, I wrote some tooling um, because I was using this. I was writing a, a production-ready Rust library for use in Liquid. I did a whole bunch of tooling for actually producing valid transactions and stuff. And I spent a while running random scripts, random mini scripts, making sure that I could sign for them and that the resulting signatures had a weight, uh, a transaction weight that was below what I had estimated, that everything was satisfiable that I thought was satisfiable and not satisfiable when I didn't think it was. And... Uh, and just generally sanity checking against the actual final produced Bitcoin transactions. So we actually have quite quite high assurance, at least for the more commonly used part of Bitcoin script, just using these random samples. <laughs> I just learned a lot in the last 52 minutes here. <laughs> Blowing my mind with it. How, how do you keep all this in your head? Because there's so many, like, just here trying to, like, you, uh, so you got mini scripts, taproot, like all this stuff that you can describe intently you you're working on music as well too right uh yeah i do yeah i am working on music and that and that will that taps into taproot and graphroot to help smart contracting capabilities correct yep so music is the the protocol that lets you jointly produce a schnorr signature <laughs> so when, when you have a a multi-signature if you have a single signature that needs to be produced by multiple people those people run the music protocol off-chain, and what comes out is a single signature mm-hmm. that you would use as taproot. So do you like working on these different aspects? Does it help you sort of uh, stay motivated, and, and do you like jumping from concept to concept? Yeah, it's, uh, it's very cool to have this kind of high-level view of the system. So actually, um, I used to wonder about Greg Maxwell, who knows everything about <laughs> everything in Bitcoin. I'm like, how could he possibly do this? Is he an alien? Um, I can't answer that question. <laughs> but... 
now that I am the research director at Blockstream since Greg left, um, I have kind of a dirty little secret here, which is that other people are doing all of these things. So like the active music development, that's mostly Jonas Nick and Tim Roofing and Peter Woola. All the Taproot stuff, that's Peter uh, and Jonas again, and AJ Towns and Johnson Lau. Uh, the Miniscript stuff actually was me and Peter. That's the one thing that I really had a part in doing. Um, and all of these people and many others send me messages all the time saying like, hey, here's something I'm doing. What do you think about it? So I get this. I don't have to look to find out what's going on. Like people come to me with information that they make an effort to make digestible by me, that they try to make understandable. So I can pretend like I know all these things about all these million things, but the truth is that I have people kind of processing this information and doing all of the heavy lifting and stuff. And I, I kind of just have an executive summary of a lot of it. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like me just being a full node operator trying to <laughs> understand what you guys are working on. Um, but no, it is a... Uh, you're a uh, you're a fascinating person, Andrew. It's um, it's thank you. It's you uh, too. <laughs> thank you. I'm not as fascinating as you. I don't think. Um, but that's yeah, crazy. Like the intense work that you're working on, and it's for something greater than yourself, Bitcoin, right? So, you, are you? Uh, let's talk about the mission of Bitcoin. Like, do you see it as imperative as we move into the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what Bitcoin is for me is it's about economic sovereignty. It's about people's ability to interact with each other and to transact with each other without worrying that their credit card company is going to censor them for interacting in the wrong way, without worrying that their bank is selling metadata to advertisers, without worrying that their merchant, who's, who's an even bigger risk, is selling data to advertisers, without worrying that their government will decide one day that they don't like certain activities that they're doing or certain people that they're donating to or certain people who they're interacting with. Um, right now, basically everywhere in the world, to a lesser or greater extent, people are restricted uh, in their economic activities in, in these ways. And with the advent, advent of the internet, this has gotten quite a bit worse because so much of the way that we transact with each other now happens over the internet, which until Bitcoin basically requires you use a credit card. You have some company that's putting up, um, that, that's loaning you the money, and your transactions are basically just sending a request to them to process this transaction. So they wind up having tremendous amounts of data about what you're doing and how you're doing it, and tremendous amounts of power to prevent you from doing so, um, or even to have a chilling effect to, to imply that if you're doing bad things, then they'll stop working with you. And... We see this happening, um, a lot of US banks, if you receive money from Coinbase, they'll say you're using Bitcoin stuff and they'll close your account. You see these kind of stories on our Bitcoin all the time. Um, in other parts of the world, there are much more serious chilling effects happening for, for things that really, if you want to have a free society, it, it's imperative that people be able to do. And what Bitcoin does is it undermines all of that censorship infrastructure, all of that surveillance infrastructure. And it lets people just interact directly with each other, directly with merchants, directly with whoever they want to interact with in a way that is very difficult to censor and should be very difficult to surveil, although it's really not right now. A lot of what I'm working on is making it harder to monitor this, although right now, unfortunately, Bitcoin is very non-private and kind of a bad idea for people who need privacy. No, and thank you for that hard work. Do you think the legacy system has too much of a head start for Bitcoin to, to catch up? No, no, no. Um, so the legacy system really is legacy. So 
One of the benefits of working for a company like Blockstream, which deals a lot with, or, or with, which talks a lot to players in traditional finance, um, often we get requests for advice or consulting or um, some sort of commentary, is that I have a bit of visibility into the way that large institutions do things today and the way that they view Bitcoin and the way that they view this blockchain stuff. And a lot of what big banks are doing is like Excel spreadsheets that they're emailing to each other and like really primitive things. And a lot of the uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin hype, we like to talk about how stupid that is because like a blockchain without Bitcoin is just a database. Like you guys, surely you guys have databases. They don't have databases in what? a lot of cases. In a lot of cases, this is really just trojaning uh, like people within these companies are using the blockchain hype buzzword to like Trojan horse, like 1980s technologies <laughs> into these banks where they should have had it forever. Um, because, and the reason this happens is that large institutions are very hesitant to change, especially processes related to tremendous amounts of money. And their existing processes have a ton of human oversight. And that's the way everything works. Is there's just tons of human oversight everywhere, which is cool. But the result is, is a lot of inefficiency and a lot of resistance to change and an inability to react to the kind of disruption that Bitcoin is causing. So I wouldn't, I mean, I guess they have a head start in terms of market adoption, mm -hmm. but they do not in terms of technology or in terms of expertise. And that's the, um, that's one thing that a lot of, like, especially in the VC world and the, uh, the post.com bubble world is fintech is a buzzword and uh, fintech sort of markets itself as new technology when it's really better UX UI on top of pre-existing technology where Bitcoin is actually a new technology. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's exactly it. So it's almost like, I mean, the, the, the way that most people in the financial space think about new technology, right? It's not new technology. So they're like, in the last like two generations ago of new technology mm -hmm. is where they are. So like Bitcoin, it's, it's, Difficult for a lot of these players to even comprehend Bitcoin because of that, because of that inferential gap. Yeah, these mental blockers, people. The sunk, I guess, the sunk cost of just ingratiating yourself in that system is it's is it a is it a old dog can't learn new tricks or is it like head in the sand don't want to learn the new tricks? Um, I mean, there are both of those, but there's also um, like because there's such a distance between the way that people are used to dealing with money. Like it takes a lot of um, outreach and education and it's difficult also for Bitcoin people to, to make, to bridge that gap, right? It's difficult for us to understand how financial institutions are working today and to even be able to speak their language to talk about why they might like Bitcoin. So there's a fun kind of story I have. I know we're, well, we're not out of time. I've got time. Um, <laughs> We've got plenty of time. Um, a couple of days ago, my friend Eric Meltzer at the Magical Crypto Conference announced a project he's been working on called the Satoshi Treasure Hunt. Shout out to the yeah. DPR Avengers, our team on the Treasure Hunt. <laughs> Is that right? right? Oh, yeah. that's that. excellent. 10% of the proceeds go oh. to uh, the Ross Albrecht and uh, Julian Assange funds. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that. Um, and the way the Satoshi Treasure Hunt works is really... So Eric did a presentation about this at the Magical Crypto Conference, and he, he made a really important observation, I think, which is that the way this treasure hunt works, where he's taken private keys that store up to a million dollars of Bitcoin, he's sharded them, and he's encoding shards everywhere, and he has like multiple copies and all sorts of um, crazy, elaborate hiding places. This is literally impossible to do with any asset except for a cryptocurrency. 
And I feel like this is something that's very exciting and very tangible that demonstrates the counterintuitive and novel properties of Bitcoin to people who otherwise wouldn't see that, that novelty. Yeah, it's like real life ready player one. It's incredible. Yeah, and it's great. It's, yeah. So he used uh, Shamir secrets, correct, to break up the key and then he broke up the keys into even more shards, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is so like what he dropped on Saturday was every teammate on his every person on his team has a special business card and if you get all their business cards, you'll get one of the shards. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess uh, podcast listeners can't see it, but I just pulled one of these cards out that he machined with a friend of his in Brooklyn a couple of days ago. It's got has a QR code that you can't really see it. Um, this is the dopest business card I've yeah, ever seen. There is a, a trick to getting the QR code out of there. If you try to peel that paper, it's, you're just going to ruin it. it. Yeah, there, there's a, a physical trick you can do um, that I'm not allowed to say. Eric okay. told me not to tell people. <laughs> um, and... This is, I guess this hadn't really occurred to me until Eric made this observation about how exciting that is um, or how, how tangible it is to see something like this and how it makes tangible a lot of weird aspects of Bitcoin. Yeah, because it's globally distributed. You have teams. The teams that are gathering have to be globally distributed because you need people in physical areas to find the clues. And so you need people who are good hunters and then you need good cryptographers. So people were basically brute forcing. Yeah, uh, they would read read the html css of the first three shards and were able to like brute force the the third or fourth key yeah um but that's the that's the problem they face it's making it harder um over time he said he got a, a call from one of his quant buddies at like a huge hedge fund is writing high frequency trading scripts and he's on the case now so <laughs> trying to make it harder for those types of minds is uh it's gonna be fun to watch yeah year. it will absolutely be fun to watch and i really i hope that this will get a lot of traction in the public eye i think it'll be a very good thing well, for, for Bitcoin, if we have a bigger price pump, no. that uh, that million dollar price prize is going to wow. rise. And uh, uh, yeah, I guess it already has. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But we've had a hell of a week on the markets. So yeah, so yeah, that's, that million is probably way above a million, right? Not way above, but yeah. above a million. It could be close to two. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I should ask him. That's that's <laughs> like it's like the FOMO. Yeah. Like think about the FOMO of just like yeah. acquiring Bitcoin, but the FOMO for this, I guess uh, around the time. If the announcement, I'm not sure exactly how many Bitcoin, but it was around like 200 Bitcoin, 210 Bitcoin or something like that. Like as this race goes on, if the price is going up, it's going to get more intense, yep. Yep. Uh, more FOMO. So that's going to be fun to watch. Um, we're an hour and five minutes in here, 20 minutes over, over my allotted time. Thank you for, for indulging me. Yeah, thank you. I want to uh, end it on, get to know a little bit more about the, the person in the last five minutes. So you are in the climbing. We were talking about free solo before. What about climbing uh, interests you? Does it help you get your mind away from this stuff? Are you thinking about this stuff while you're climbing? Is it therapeutic? No, it definitely helps me get my mind away. So I was introduced to climbing, actually, by Peter Todd, who's well-known in the Bitcoin space. Mm -hmm. I was visiting some folks at the BHB lab in Milan, uh, where Peter used to spend quite a lot of time working. Um, I don't know if he does now. They restructured a little bit, and I'm not sure how his projects moved there. Um, but I wound up in Milan visiting some friends of mine, um, Giacomo Luzuko, who everyone on Twitter knows, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Mir Limponi, uh, and Peter Todd. And uh, we went to a climbing gym in Milan, and, and I really got into it. Um, what I find is it does help me, so I can't think about Bitcoin. When you're on the wall and it, like, if you screw up, then you fall. There's very much a, a physical need to focus on what your body is doing and how your body is positioned. And it helps to be 
aware of something so physical and concrete when you spend all of your time otherwise doing such incredible abstract things. And I find it's very grounding and it's very meditative. And I enjoy it for that reason. That. You're uh, reintroduced to your mortality. Yes. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's good. It's good to have that happen. I right? think. No, it <laughs> definitely is. Um, and I'm not going to ruin free solo for you, but I think you're really going to like it. Yeah, I should. It's go. I as I said, it's open on my my Amazon page right now, and I still have not clicked play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to let let you get on with your day here. Uh, before we part, do you have a word of advice, um, something you want to bring to the attention of the freaks out there, anything? All right, so I have something very specific that I want to say, <laughs> which is that Shamir secret sharing is exactly the right tool for running an enormous treasure hunt where somebody takes all the money. It is not a substitute for multi-signatures. That's, that's all. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an intuition. When people hear about Samir's sh- secret sharing, they think it's super cool. I can split my Bitcoins up amongst multiple people. But the point of secret sharing is that somebody reconstructs a whole key and spends it. So when if you're using it this way, that's great for a treasure hunt. But if It's you're still one key. Right? It's still one key, exactly. Versus using a multi-signature, where it's never one key. It's actually an interactive protocol uh, where multiple parties have to all contribute to the specific transaction they're mm. signing. Yeah, so be aware of that, freaks. Be aware. Yeah, there um, we go. That is my advice. Thank you for that PSA. <laughs> and thank you for joining us, Andrew. It's, cool. uh, thank it's been you. a pleasure, man. Yeah, for me as well. Peace and love, freaks. Bye-bye.